In France, they are called les conteurs, the tellers of tales. In South America, habladores, the speakers. In Ireland, the storyteller is known as the shanachí, the teller of ancient stories, one who knows things. During the Middle Ages, they were the troubadour and jongleur, the wandering musicians who recalled the past. In Northern Ireland now, they're called the yarn spinners, and they come from both traditions. They cross boundaries of class and creed in this divided community. This year, the love of a good story brought them, together with storytellers from the South, from England and the United States, to Coultra in County Down, to the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum for one weekend last June. Long and merry ago in Scotland there lived, on the clacking of Kintail along the shores of Loch Duith, a carpenter and his name was Willie. Now, he would do a wee bit of fishing when the carpentry was slack and he had a wee boat. He had the boat hauled up for repairs one morning and he was looking her over and he decided to replace the fore part of the bow. It was all worn away, you see. He looked in his woodshed and he could find nothing to suit. He knew he'd get nothing in the way of driftwood along the beach that day, so off he went into the village and there he met his friend Peter and they decided to talk it over over a few pints. 19 pints to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> and then Willie ate a meat pie and he began to wish he hadn't. Anyway, he came home. Do you people know that there is a gate between heaven and the lower regions? I only heard about it the other day, so it doesn't matter if you didn't hear about it. But so it seems it exists. And with this good weather we've been having recently, Peter was able to go away with the old dramatics and have a wander round. And he saw that this gate was in a very bad state of repair. So he phoned his opposite number down below and he complained about the gate. And he said, it's your responsibility, you know because he said, none of my lot want to get down to your place, but a lot of your lot would want to get up to my place. So we said, it's your responsibility. And Satan said, not me, Peter. stories that I, I come across, I'm always looking out for stories about the country, about people, whether it's a hire and fare, and, uh, or, 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 or whether it's a, a fight with a man and his wife, or a, some young fella getting a job and not being happy in it, or maybe a boy who did awful well and uh, got home and made his way home and his adventures and his way home, and so on. You see, the whole country, if a buddy was to open their eyes, looking, there's a wealth of newness every day, and if you listen carefully, I used to go up to Achill and, 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 and uh, go over to Duiga and uh, I stopped a night or two in a glorified pub and uh, I'd always like to go down into the pub and sit down in a corner quietly and listen to the conversation. And there were a wealth of stories to be told there and a wealth of stories were told and there weren't anything special. It was just what was happening from day to day and that's really what makes a story. When I walk up there, 
on the stage. It's the most remarkable thing about me. I never think of what I'm going to tell them. And I just stand up and I look around at the crowd and then I see a face and something strikes me to tell them what people have said to me. Like, um, I saw a little boy in the audience one night and it reminded me of the story of the little boy that came to the door and said, are you the old doll from the Free State, Mrs. that fixes old dolls? Ireland yarn spinners are a unique body. We're all kinds of people that are there. Teachers, nurses, doctors, clergymen, and what have you. And we all meet, about a hundred of us indeed, so it shows you the interest there is in yarn spinning in the north of Ireland. There's about a hundred of us gather in the Linen Hall Library, and what better place could one go to? And there, the second Wednesday in each month, we go along and we pay our 150 and we sit down and listen to a wealth of yarns. And it's not pick people. No, if you have a yarn to tell, you're invited to tell it. And some people just get up in the audience and would tell the story. And other people would get up at the front, maybe pick people, and they would tell a yarn. But it's a most entertaining and interesting evening, but better than that. The way we feel about the yarn spinners is that we're reawakening an old tradition of Irish culture and helping people to realise that there's more to life than TV and radio and that kind of thing. We're trying to reawaken the old spirit of the turf fire, the oil lamp and the whiles crack around the fire with the odd yarn thrown in to make, make conversation. The Ulster Folk and Transport Museum is a, a museum that's been set up to try and show what life was like around about 1900. What they're really trying to do is recreate the old landscape. It has 180 acres and the manor house was built by people called Kennedy. And the manor house is now a conference centre and of course we're having the storytelling festival in that. And then in the grounds there's a transport museum and a folk museum and they also have houses recreated and they just look as they did look in the past and they have a little town too with a couple of churches and a courthouse and I think it's wonderful. We use the old houses in the folk park. I mean, this place is full of history. We're using, for example, the old Ballyverida schoolhouse, and we have Paddy O'Brien, who's actually a school teacher who works in Cork, telling stories in that, which is very appropriate. We use the old bank manager's house, the Porkinone Bank, and we have Tom McDevitt, who's 80 years old, a veteran storyteller. He actually knew one of the bank managers, so that gives it a sense of place and history. And we also use um, a lovely rectory, and once again, appropriately enough, we're having a retired minister tell stories there. So over the two days, now that we're trying to use the buildings just as they would have been used in the past. I, uh, I think it's only a matter of time. I think Jack has already said what Liz has done for storytelling uh, in Northern Ireland here and I was just watching about five minutes of the television this morning and the Queen was haunting out all sorts of honours. So uh, <laughs> there's only be a matter of time we're getting up here and talking to her ladyship. <laughs> She's bound to get a JCB or some of them things. <laughs> I don't know what it is. 
Well, Brian and Alison Moore and myself had a very nice steak there, you know, and I was sitting thinking a, a little story about the boy that went to the orange dinner. Now, they didn't go to dinner to eat oranges, if you know what I mean, those of you, those of you that are of other persuasion and don't understand, uh, that he was a member of the Loyal Orange Lodge. He was a visitor. Well, Peter, you'd know what I'm talking about, but anyway, he's one of the Cross McLean's Blue Blues he belongs to. Anyway, so, anyway, where they said that orange holes were as scarce as hen's teeth. But anyway, so, uh, this orange man went along, you see, and he was a visitor, and it was a big dinner. And they're sitting down and mowing them on, they set these stakes in front of them. Oh, you know, I've never seen, you've never seen stakes like that. Full angel dust. The stakes, you know, they, 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 they ate the plates themselves, they were powerful. But this man, you see, this gentleman sitting beside him, he couldn't help noticing this fella hadn't made a beat. The Pope was coming to the land of saints and scholars, and where was he not allowed to come? He was forbid to come into the north of Ireland. What's in the north of Ireland? The city of Armagh. What's the city of Armagh? It's the religious capital, the ecclesiastical capital. And the Pope not going to allow to come to the ecclesiastical capital of Ireland. They gave him two days off in Maynooth College, for he was very tired. He woke to move. Where did His Holiness arrive one heel of one evening? Irish Street in Armagh. And the creators coming walking down the street, and he saw this, this sitting room window. And I said in the sitting, there's a man there opening a tin of coke. I went into the, the, the bar, you see, he's got to have a tin of coke, please. Bob Mon says, certainly. Set up the tin of coke, you see, and the boy took this sort of hatchet affair. Right Somebody always said that Northern Ireland people have a wonderful capacity to laugh at themselves. And I think, you know, it's a great therapy. I think it's wonderful that somebody can stand up and tell a story about going to an orange dinner, an Orange Lodge dinner, and somebody else could stand up and tell a story about going to confession. And the audience, I think people from outside Northern Ireland find that hard to believe. They think we're always at each other's throats. And actually, this is more normal than the, the, the media stuff that you see. So I think, I've always firmly believed that everybody has a story to tell, and that also we have a tolerance and a capacity to listen to other people's stories. So that's why I think we keep going on, and that's why the storytelling appeals to such a wide age range of people and a wide mixture of people. So they had nothing to do with Saturday. But they got up early anyway, priest, they were forgetting up early. And uh, they went away for a drive back to the west of the parish. And at the west of the parish, there's a strand, a beach called Inch. Now, if ever a place was badly named in the English translation, it is Inch in Irish, which is Inch in England, in English, and it is about four miles long. <laughs> it was about eight o'clock in the morning. And they always parked the car on the top of the beginning of a car park up at the top of the road. And they went for a stroll down the strand. Now, I don't know what it was. It must be the way the breeze was blowing in over the Atlantic. But something piqued the young priest. Something got him going, and the ideas started coming into his head. And he hit the old priest at dunt of an elbow like that. He says, Father, come on to say, we'll go for a swim. <laughs> the old priest looked around and said, for God's sake, will you have a cop on? <laughs> we have no... Um, Swimming attire. <laughs> they had no swimming tugs. Never says the young priest, sure. It is very early in the morning. He looked at his watch. About ten past eight. He said, should there be no one up? And you know what? He was dead right, because in my parish of a Saturday morning, there wouldn't be many up around eight o'clock in the morning, only maybe the priest, like I said. So we got it must have been the nice the nice kind of a sea breeze and the nice smell it affected the old parish priest as well. Against his better judgment, didn't he agree that he'd go for a swim? So over the two priests went the old lad and the young lad, over near the sand dunes. And over there, they divested themselves of the clerical garb. And they left it there in two and eight, 
ecclesiastical piles by the sandhills. <laughs> and in they went anyway, in they went in the nip for a dip. And there they were inside. And they were, they were swimming away, they were doing the breaststroke and, and, and the backstroke and the crawl and a rate of other strokes now that I wouldn't know anything about. <laughs> they were all the time being very careful now, mind you, to swim parallel to the shore, like we're told to do by the Road Safety Association. <laughs> and they were swimming away and they were enjoying it, man, the water was, I suppose, to the month of August, and the water was fine and soft and kind of lukewarm and they were loving it and they were swimming away, see. And neither the two boys, so intent were they in the swimming, that they never noticed a big coach pulling up at the top of the strand. <laughs> It was a, a party of nuns up from Cork. <laughs> up from Cork on a day trip. And they parked the coach right beside the priest's car and there emerged from that coach a gaggle of nuns. <laughs> being led by the Supreme Commander herself, the Führer, the Reverend Mother. She lined them up two by two and she frog-marched them down along the strand. And where did the nuns set up base camp? But just beside the place where the boys had left the two late ecclesiastical piles of clerical guard. Okay. Dead chairs were procured. Some umbrellas were shot aloft into the air. The nuns were settling down. And it must have been the morning sun glinting on the steel at the top of the sun umbrella that caught the parish priest's eye because he saw the shiny thing and he looked around. Well, he said a few words that a priest wouldn't be supposed to say. And he nearly drowned in the process. Look, so say, what'll we do now? Take it easy, says the young priest. Take it easy, sure they'll be gone in about half an hour. Keep swimming away. So the lads were swimming away. They were slowing down the stroke a bit now, saving their strength. The nuns have begun in half an hour. No fear of it. They were only settling down. A picnic hamper was procured. There were three, three, three or four smart little fat nuns, and they were wiring into sandwiches. It was, it was safe to eat the cucumbers back then. And there was... There was another nun, there was another nun now, and she was reading The Woman's Way. She was on the, the fifth page of the serial. And the Reverend Mother was watching them all, but indeed she couldn't keep her eye on all of them. Maybe there was about 40 all together. And down at the end, far away from her a bit, there was three or four of the young nuns. This was now after Vatican II, when the laws were a bit relaxed. And they were stretched out, and God knows they had the habits pulled up a little bit, and they were tanning the bottoms of their legs. There was another nun, she was crocheting a little garment for herself. I don't rightly know what it was. They were only settling down for the day anyway. They didn't know anything about nuns, you see. And the two boys were outside, you see. They were all right for a while. But the trouble was, the sun was rising. And the tide was going out. <laughs> and the thing was that the two lads had to go out with the tide, like. Being very careful now, mind you, to keep the water level high enough so that uh, the glorious mysteries wouldn't be revealed to the nuns. <laughs> now, that was okay. They were all right where they were, you see, because... They, they were able to put their toes down, and it was fairly shallow, and they were able to put their toes down in the sand, and they were able to keep their heads up, and they were kind of doggy paddling away. But the trouble was, their muscles were getting a bit tired, they knew that, just keeping their heads above water, literally. But the trouble was, the parish priest, he had the local knowledge, and he knew that after about another 20 yards, they were in fierce trouble. Because from there out, there was a sudden drop, and if they had to go out beyond that with the tide, they were sunk, literally. So he didn't know what to do, and by God, you know, in the end, didn't he think of his plan? He said he chants a prayer to Saint Jude. That's the hopeless cases, fella. <laughs> so, he blessed himself. And it's very hard to bless yourself and keep swimming at the same time. But he managed it anyway. He blessed himself and he chanced a prayer to Saint Jude. And you know what? The same day Saint Jude was on duty, on the ball, didn't he answer the prayer? Because 
out of the corner of his eye, the parish priest, about a half a mile down the strand, he saw it. Salvation, says he. What was it, Buddy Kerry, man, blowing in the breeze? Now, that's not a person at all. It is a newspaper. I don't know what it would be the equivalent of the Ballymini Garden or the, the telly or something. It? it is a local newspaper anyway down in Kerry. And he saw the Kerry man blowing in the breeze. He said, salvation, come on to see to the young priest. Well, they summoned up the last bit of strength that they had. And they struck out. And they only barely made it. Now, they were down about 800 yards away at the stage. So they were out of range of vision of the nuns. So they shot out, the two of them. And they got a page each of the, of the Kerry man. And they covered it. The appropriate areas of the body. <laughs> the parish priest had the Munster Farmer section, I think, and the, <laughs> the young priest had the sporting page. <laughs> they, put, they put their hands around it like that, and they walked up carefully, tup, 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 like that, up along the strand, taking very short steps for fear they'd tear the page, you see, and uh, would destroy the whole effect. So they thought that maybe they'd be able to steal in behind the nuns because their clothes were behind the nuns in near the sandhills and they thought that maybe they'd be able to steal in behind them and not be seeing it all. But, no chance of it. Just when they were about 20 yards away from the nuns, all the nuns' heads swiveled around in unison and all their eyes popped out of their heads. And as soon as the nuns looked around, what did the old priest do? But he caught the page like, and he put it up like that. <laughs> and Jamie Mac, the young priest, the young priest was looking at him, and the young priest kept it down where it was. And to be very hard to blame him. <laughs> well, they ran over anyway, and I don't rightly know now how they managed it. But anyway, I suppose they kept the pages in place with one hand, and they went over to where their clothes were, and they picked them up, up under their axters, and they ran in behind the sand hills. And uh, they took their time, it took them ages to get their breaths back. And they put on all the black clothes and they were putting on the collars. And about five minutes later, when they got their breaths back, the young priest, he said to the old priest, he said, Father, says he, there's one thing I have to ask you. There's one question I have to put you. What's that, says the old priest. Well, he said, when all the nuns looked around and they looked at you, why did you lift your page up in front of your face? Well, I don't know about you, says the old priest. But it is my face they'd recognise. <laughs> conservation in Ireland. I'm able to say it now, like, I wasn't able to for a while with my false teeth, but I'm able to say it now. And he said, uh, he recited a very old ancient Irish recitation, 
What shall we do for timber? The last of the woods are gone. Kill cash on the house and its glory, and the bell of the house is gone. Well, for the benefit of the people that are here, from Australia and America and all, I'll endeavour to say some of it in Irish, because I know there's no hope of asking Ian Cole. <laughs> <laughs> So it's the infamage fast the image to Jeranna Kelcher Lor, Neil Throckter Kilkosh no Chilock, Isni Clint Brown Chin Gobra, on Archu the Goni on Shevan, a Shevahar is Graham Harmona, Ben Erleg Tarrant on Shinan, is Hantafran Ben Hurra. My grief and my desolation. Your gates are taken away. Your avenue needs attention and goats in your garden stray. So I pray to Mary and Jesus that the great come home again, that Kilcash, the house of our forefathers, be lifted on high again with fiddle music and dance in the garden and high spirits among men. And from that to the deluge of waters, in bounty and peace, remain. When I was young, I used to make my own clothes and I used to uh, be on the bicycle and um, people complained to my mother that I was going about dressed like a butterfly and the workmen were building houses opposite and they used to whistle at me. So the nuns saw them whistling one day and they told my mother that I was distracting the workmen because I was dressed in these bright colours. So... Fifty years after, I was walking up the Cliftonville Road in Belfast and uh, a goat came out of the cricket ground and he followed me and I went into the Cliftonville school, closed the gate on him. And I was telling my sister after about it and she said, does anything exciting happen in Belfast besides the troubles? And I said, well, now the goat followed me up the road. And she said, was it in the winter time? Uh, had your fur coat on. And I said, yes, why do you ask? And she said, because, she said, the goat mistook you for another goat. <laughs> That's not it. It's changed times from a butterfly to a goat. Now, I was telling another sister about it and about the story about the goat. And she said, right enough, she said, when you wear that hat and those feathers on the side. She said, you do look like a goat. (laughs) 
Liz O'Reilly was born and reared in the Falls Road in Belfast. She's only too proud to tell people. I first met her when she came to work in the library service telling stories to children. But I'm delighted to say that she's now a regular yarn spinner and comes along sharing her stories with old and young alike. This is a story about a group of young ladies who in the early 70s in West Belfast really didn't have that much to do than to go to school and go to the dance. And having a severe shortage of young men in the area because most of them were either interned or incarcerated for a few years, they all decided to get themselves husbands right and quick, as would be quite a few years before they all got out again. So having procured themselves husbands, they settled down to have their children and have their little homes and they really enjoyed what they were doing for a while. But then after a while they started to read books and the breakfast TV came on and they started to chat among themselves and they decided that they were bored and took themselves back to night school, which lo and behold opened up a whole new life for them. So they did a couple of O-levels, did a wee bit of English literature, did a wee bit of maths and realised they weren't as thick as they thought they were and decided to do a couple more. Well, it wasn't long before they had six and seven O-levels and decided to hell with this, we'll try the A-levels. And it wasn't long before they got the A-levels, they got their A's and their B's and thought, we can fry bigger fish than this, and they headed off to Queen's University. Now, in order to do their O-levels, they had to get up at eight o'clock in the morning, get the kids out, get the hobbies lunch packed, get them all off, fly up the road, do the shopping on the way down, do their studying at night when they got the babies to bed, and it was fine. But to do their A-levels, they had to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning, get the kids out to school, get the hobby out early, fly up the road, sit in longer classes, sit up late at night and get their assignments in. But now when they got to Queen's, by God, being as liberated as they were, truly liberated women, educated and everything with those and A's, why they got up at 6 o'clock in the morning, made the beds, did the washing, did the hoovering, did the shopping before they went to Queen's, peeled the spuds before they went out, got the husband in, settled him down, did the homework for the now bigger children, got the kids to bed at 9 o'clock at night, sat down and worked at 2 o'clock in the morning because they were doing a degree now. And, you know, they decided, well, to hell with the degree, we'll do our master's. And so they did. So Chrissy went off to be a social worker and she got up at six in the morning and she did five days a week and she worked all Saturday and she worked all Sunday and she cleaned in between and the kids went to school. But she was a really, truly liberated woman after all. And then she got a job, just like Anne, like Liz and like the rest of them, and they started to earn some money. So the husbands didn't have to work the long shifts they were doing and they could play golf on a Saturday. But, you know, they were truly liberated after all. They were fully classed working women. And the men, why they could play golf and go to bowls on a Sunday and stand in the pub at night, while the women's student did the washing and planned their workload for the next day. But then, education liberates you, doesn't it? <laughs> I'd heard a lot about Eddie Lenehan, storyteller originally from Kerry, and people in Dublin had told me he was wonderful with all age groups. So he came up to Belfast a few years ago to tell stories at the Linen Hall Library, and I took him also to some summer schemes. He did a wonderful session up in, in Ardoin, and I thought it was important that he saw both sides of our so-called divide, so I took him to a community centre in the Woodvale. This was a centre where not just children came for stories, we had the grannies as well. So it was the community centre in Disraeli Street. <laughs> now the thing about the community centre in Disraeli Street, that is the place where the grannies came to hear the stories. And people have asked me about this in the past, 
I went out and told stories to the kids, and at Woodvale, all these grannies turned up. They sort of hunt in packs. And I said, is it, is it a, a senior citizen's afternoon? And they all said, no, they're here for the storytelling. So I thought, well, no better man, you see. So I edged Eddie in, trying to avert his gaze from the very nice murals on the outside, got him in there, and uh, the welcoming committee was there, where there were a lot of young men, about 18, with skinheads and earrings in, and they were quite intrigued by Eddie's accent. Quite intrigued. They were. I was saying, it's okay, he's with me, I'm in the library, which usually works all right. And then the grannies, <laughs> then the grannies told him the story, you know, he, he sat there and told them the stories, and they listened all in, and then the grannies told him their stories. So this woman, I remember, reached over to Eddie and says, what do you think of this country? And it was lovely, he just went, it's very nice. <laughs> and then she said to him, what do you think of Mrs. Thatcher? And as I recall, Eddie, you did say, Oh, No, you didn't, you didn't. <laughs> he didn't say that, he said something like, she's very nice. But however, can I just say that his stories worked, and that is the beauty of story. Haven't we had it all tonight? We've yeah, had orange yeah. dinners, <laughs> we've had priests, there's more to come, I assure you. Much, much more to come. I'm going to bring because you will have noticed that Nearly all of the stories so far have had something of religion in them. Now, is that surprising or is it because of the place we're in? I don't know that, but I'll continue the lead I got from my betters and my elders. Ian included there. Now, I bet you there aren't so many people in this gathering that can tell me the name of the only Irish Pope. I was? Yes. Paddy <laughs> the first. Now, you might say that's a load of nonsense that there was never an Irish Pope, but there was, because the English textbooks that they used to use in the schools that suppressed all that knowledge. They wanted to keep Irish people, you know, at their own level. So um, they had to deny things like that. When an Irishman goes up in the world, I always say, it is nice to give him fair credit. And there was one Irishman who became Pope. But the only bother was, you see, there were the days when democracy was a thing unheard of when the Pope would be elected. No such thing that time as the smoke, the white smoke or the black smoke or other kind of smoke. The way they used to elect a Pope was that when the old Pope would die, the chair that he used to sit on, a throne I suppose you'd call it, when they had the man planted that was dead, they'd take his throne, they'd live a few days just to show respect of course until they make sure he wouldn't be coming back to life because <laughs> like his master, well he could. And, uh, <laughs> When they'd be safely dead and nicely planted under a good solid weight of marble, they'd take the chair that that man had inhabited for all his sitting life and they'd put it out in the big room in the Vatican and time after time it was found, miracles I suppose, miracles do happen even yet, that the chair, as soon as it saw the person that was to be the new Pope, would always walk towards him. No, that's the reason why they always kept women out of those gatherings, because those boys knew that that chair might walk towards a woman as well as towards a man. And what would happen then? Uh, but anyway, that's a different story, part three, that is. Now, I'll tell you about this one first. There was a priest in Goth one time, parish priest, and he was a man... You, you'll find yourself in various situations with various audiences, some places you'll know, some places you'll know nobody at all of the place is completely unfamiliar to you, you don't know the people's background, that are, that are just a sea of faces looking up there. Well, in a case like that I find that I sometimes, as you say, will mention the where I got the story because it's just a lead-in, something to just put you at your ease to get a small bit of feedback, not 
spoken feedback, but just from the faces to see how the, how are the faces reacting to you, sympathetic. Can they understand you? Because very often you see it's a matter of your accent and you just have to break them in gradually. But I find that when all that is done and you can do what you, you can do, it'll only take maybe a minute or two minutes or whatever, and just a bit of banter, anything at all to get, to get yourself loosened up. Um, I find that what's always in my mind uh, behind all of this particular situation uh, uh, that I find myself in is that, that I have collected those stories from people. Uh, a lot of those people are dead now. I find that I owe it at least to those people who told me the stories, gratis and for nothing, that since they're dead, and if they're dead, or if they're not dead even, they deserve to be remembered. They deserve to be able to go to places that they never were able to go to. I can. I have been God knows where, and I've brought those people with me. And I'm not doing that out of any sense of, you know, God, I'm lucky to be able to be here. It's just a sense of, well, Gratitude, I hope, for those people who gave me so freely what they did give me, never asked for anything except somebody to listen to their story. I can at least remember the people who told me those stories when I come to an audience. Sometimes you're able to say it. You're able to, you know, depending on the feedback you get, you're able to talk a little bit about where you got the story. Sometimes that's not the case at all. You just go ahead, tell your story, and think in your own mind, well, look, Jimmy, or look, Mick, or Paddy, or Mary, or whoever, and this is for you. And... You owe them that. Maud Steele and her brothers are uh, wonderful. Maud writes her own material. And uh, they're very, very funny and very witty. And it's just about the ordinary things in life and about getting married and then the children, the wains, as she calls them, and uh, about trying to lie in bed, but when her children kept on calling her and she had to get up, and it was uh, the joys and sorrows of married life for any lady. You know, when you see the bride taking those four steps down the steps of the church, you know they're only the first steps and that's it. You're stepping then for the rest of your life. I woke up with a cough and a splutter and a terrible ache in my head. I staggered across to the bathroom and I thought, I'll just go back to bed. I don't think I'll get up this morning. I croaked. I got a right dose. Just lie there, says James. I'll go down now and make a wee cup of tea and some toast. Okay, I says. Just kept the wings up. And lay back in the bed with a sigh. The next thing, I hears this voice shouting, Hey, Mommy, did you see my tie? I says, No! Do you look at your bedroom? He says, aye, but I don't see it there. So I trailed out of bed and looked for it and pulled it out of the back of a chair. I had just settled down when the phone rang and nobody seemed to hear it but me. I no wonder, for sure you'd hear nothing with the noise blaring from the on TV. But still that old phone kept on ringing till I just couldn't stand any more. So I struggled up, going to answer it, and it stopped. 
as my feet hit the floor. I just snuggled back under the blankets. And that's all their head pops round the door. She says, Mommy, I need dinner money. So I put my feet back on the floor and I hoped in my purse for the money. Then lay back down to rest my poor head when the waste boy climbs out of his cot saying, Mommy, I sleep in your bed. So he jumped and oh, tromped on my stomach. Then he poked at my eyes, pulled my hair. Then he started to kick off the bedclothes till he nearly drove me to despair. And below I heard not such sweet music. The recorder. Boys, that thing's a curse. If you have a sore head, a recorder being played makes it feel ten times worse. So at last I just gave up the struggle and went down and the old dressing gown. Says James, are you feeling about better? Sure didn't expect you to come down. Feeling better? I snapped. Glad you think so. And I near at the face of my spouse. You'd get more pace to sleep on the diamond than you'd get to rest here on this house. <laughs> this is the finale as it's entitled on the programme of our afternoon, our whole weekend. And I have to say, um, although I may have been running about like a headless chicken, I think it's been the most enjoyable storytelling festival yet. Um, I think to see you all interacting and telling stories together, the whole point of storytelling is sharing. And over the weekend, we have had a sharing of people. We've had people, as you know, from Australia, Canada, United States, Germany, all over the countryside. People from Dublin, people from Cork, people from Clare, Melda from Roscommon, all over the Ireland as part from further afield. I'm from Jordanstown. And Harry Scott's from Jordanstown. Uh, we've had people from all over the country. But the, the amazing thing about it, even when you just look around this room, people from all walks of life, people of all different ages, all coming together to share a common interest in storytelling. We've had 19 storytellers over the weekend. No two of them have the same style. Only two of them told the same story, or <laughs> But there again, Dan Gould did tell me the story in the first place. A wealth of thanks and appreciation to Liz Weir. Yeah. Liz is like... Now, I can tell you, Liz is like a wee stray kitten that you would bring into the house and take in your arms and that, and you don't want to leave that kitten. And the way it can look up at you and coax you, there's men there that you would think couldn't speak. And they've stood up and sang, and ladies have got up and told stories and told about mistakes and everything they've made. People that you wouldn't expect that would admit to anything like that. But Liz brings it out. There's no doubt about it, Liz Weir is the centre and circumference of yarn spinning in the north of Ireland. It was her idea to get people together. It was her storytelling that prompted it in the imagination of so many other people. It was her committal to the thing that enabled her to 
go from our own home and cover the country, I indeed north and south and as far away as Australia and America, they wanted to hear Liz Weir telling stories. And she did not disappoint them. Liz is really brilliant. She's got that happy knack of being able to be friendly with people, good personality that attracts people, and the art of putting across her yarn. You know, she's a very wonderful person, and it is to her that we must attribute all credit for the yarn spinning in the north of Ireland. Others have told stories before, but it was Liz Weir that brought this to life by her own push personality and perseverance, and, as well as that, her knowledge of stories and ability to put the stories over. Thank you.